tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Harrison. Dr. Harrison is Professor Emeritus of Surgery, Pediatrics, OBGYN and Reproductive Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, and Director Emeritus of the UCSF Fetal Treatment Center. He is a cum laude graduate of Yale University, where he received his Bachelor's of Arts and graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Medical School. He then completed his general surgical training at Mass Gen Hospital, followed by a pediatric surgery fellowship at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. He has been faculty at UCSF since 1978, where he developed the nation's first fetal treatment center, pioneered numerous innovations in fetal surgery, and became internationally recognized as the father of fetal surgery. Dr. Harrison is now dedicated to further innovations, having founded the UCSF Pediatric Device Consortium in 2009. It is my great honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Harrison. Thank you. Make it up. So we like to start all of our podcasts um, asking you, tell us a little bit more about where you're from and what led you down this career path. Uh, thank you. I grew up in the, in the what was then the small town of Vancouver, Washington, um, and my dad was a general practitioner, <clears throat> and I think from a very young age, I thought that I would be a doctor and probably a general practitioner like my dad, or a good old-fashioned country doctor. And then in the course of training, I got, I veered off, <laughs> didn't do that. So I went from there <clears throat> to Yale University, and that was an incredible adventure because I'd never really been out of our little area, so... Applying to these schools on the East Coast was like applying to Cambridge or Oxford. It was so, I didn't know what the hell was out there. But anyway, that turned out to be a good experience. And then I went on and did, uh, and I, uh, the only important thing I did at Yale is I rode on the crew. <laughs> and uh, then I went on to Harvard Medical School and I had a good time there and married my first wife, Still my wife. <laughs> uh, when we were in second year, yeah. And then after that, went to the Mass General as sort of a natural stepping stone. And, and at the time, it was wonderful because there were just a lot of really cool surgeons there. Um, and it was it was the old time. It was unlike you guys who know <laughs> resident work hours. And it was the old system. It was pretty much all men. And it, it was, you know, it was East Coast sort of hard-ass <laughs> residency training stuff. But it was good. And at the end of that, it was just a little transition. So in in the 
course of doing that, I uh, fell in love with pediatric surgery. I had no idea about any of this stuff when I started. But it just like that, I was on a pediatric surgery rotation actually when I was an intern the first year. And I just thought, that's what I have to do. <clears throat> and at the end of that, and then in the middle of that training, we, it, like a lot of folks, we took time off and did research like you guys are doing now. Um, for a couple of years in a, in those days uh, of the Vietnam War, the the best thing you could possibly do was go to NIH <laughs> because you were in the public health service and it counted as your military duty. So for two years, you were in a wonderful place doing wonderful research uh, with wonderful people and it counted. <laughs> and in those days, it was very serious about getting drafted if you dropped out of anything. So um, so at the end of that, since I knew I wanted to do pediatric surgery, but I didn't know much about where or, and the pediatric surgery programs were just developing. Are any of the, are you guys interested in pediatric? You both are? Mm -hmm. Cool. It, it, it was uh, a different game, an easier game than you guys are playing. Because even though there were very few programs, like I think eight or something, I mean, it was a tiny number of programs, there were also a tiny number of people interested in it, so I think yours is far more competitive today. Um, but the fun thing I did at the end of uh, general surgery training is I did this double switch thing <laughs> where I went to the MGH and said, hey, I'm really interested in pediatric surgery. Can I have the last six months off? In other words, do six months less than five years and still have it count for my general surgery? They said, okay, it seems all right. Then I went to the, my pediatric surgery program, which at that time was L.A. Children's. I just signed up and said, if I sign up for here, could I have the first six months off <laughs> to do something else that would be surgical? So, And then uh, we went and lived in Norway for six months, and it counted for both the end of general surgery and the beginning of pediatric surgery. And it was a very wonderful time for us. We had two little kids and for, and it was very productive. So that's how I got to the do pediatric surgery. Yeah. And perhaps that segue was, you know, a, a fortuitous start to a, li a lively career. Uh, so do you have any stories in particular about times during your training at MGH or exposures you had to other professionals within pediatric surgery that really inspired you to enter the profession? Yes, and it's also the uh, genesis of fetal surgery. So when I was, I told you when I was uh, uh, an intern, I got one of my first rotations was with a pediatric surgeon, a very uh, great guy named Hardy Hendren. And, and I just, I just thought it was what he was doing was fantastic. And of course, I was so naive. I mean, you know, right out of medical school, I didn't know anything. <clears throat> and we did this, uh, he did, <laughs> a diaphragmatic heart, newborn with diaphragmatic hernia. And in those days, those days, they were all shipped in, right? They didn't, they didn't well, we didn't have OB at, at, at Mass General. So, um, they were all fairly desperate. <laughs> so we did this case, and I thought it was the most beautiful surgery in the, his reconstruction of the diaphragm and all. It was just gorgeous. And the next day, the kid died, as is, as you know, is usually the case. Um, and, and I was so naive, so green, that I said, you know, 
and of course I looked after the kid all night and sat with him and all that stuff. And he died no matter what we could do. And I said, you know, this kid doesn't seem to die from the surgery. The surgery was great. He died because his lungs not big enough. <laughs> and I said to Hardy, I said, you know, the only way to really save these kids is to fix it before birth so the lung can grow by the time he really needs it at birth. That was really the genesis of the whole thing. And that was when I was an intern. So then I fooled around, got through the residency. But I had actually written down a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do and I thought could be done. Of course, the, the surgeons would say, you know, they almost fell over on their backs when they heard that. They said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That's, you can't do that. No one's ever done that. You can't do that. Um, and it was true. It just, it just, people couldn't conceive of it. What do you think it was about you that, you know, heard that, the naysayers, who are well above you in pay grade and experience, and still you had the drive to keep going forward. What was it about that? Well, for one thing, uh, to be honest, it took a long time, right? So here I am, an intern, I have this idea, and I start talking to people about it, and everybody poo-poos it. Uh, but it wasn't until, um, well, I went away to the NIH, and I started doing uh, research that I actually, on my own, did research on fetal stuff. Uh, no one, the scientists didn't believe in it either. And, and then it wasn't until after pediatric surgery in Los Angeles, when I moved to San Francisco for my first job, that I could actually put it into action. So that's a long time. That's probably eight years or something. So it wasn't very quick, and it wasn't very quickly accepted. <laughs> the one thing when you say that, though, makes me think that you weren't I think that maybe you had other aspects where you had been thinking that way because it couldn't have just been this one patient. So are there examples or memories you have from even prior to that where you, you were seeing patients or even not even in the medical world that you something was occurring and you, your, your brain was processing it in a way where you're thinking, well, maybe there's a better solution to this? That is extremely insightful. And the reason is, that when I was in medical school, the first time I was really excited about stuff and science and, you know, doing anything, I always thought I was just going to go through medical school and be a general practitioner, was when I stumbled on the problem of, or the paradox, of why the mother didn't reject the fetus. So that was years before that other thing about surgery. And I just started, I said, that's the most amazing problem, and no one knows the answer. Uh, and so that's what I actually did at the NIH. I tried to solve that problem. Obviously, it failed completely. <laughs> but so had everybody else. And, and essentially, everybody's failed since then. I mean, we really don't know for sure, although some very good recent work on that. So the first problem was why the fetus was not rejected, and then it later evolved into surgery. So with regards to the eventual uh, coming of age of this field of fetal surgery, you know, you've been called the father of fetal surgery. Um, can you take us through the steps it took to take, you know, a field that did not even exist into one that uh, is now world renowned for uh, producing some of the most miraculous of miracles? Yeah, I, I love where it's gone, where it's ended up, and it has nothing to do with me. But the folks, the, how we got it started was <clears throat> I moved to San Francisco out of uh, resident, out of 
fellowship, specifically because I had this idea in my head that we should be doing something before birth. And uh, it was the, so I, I looked around and said, well, where is some place where you could actually accomplish this? And you know what? There aren't many. Like you couldn't go back to Boston and all the fancy places. You just couldn't do it there. It's just, you couldn't go to Philadelphia. You couldn't go to established places. And here was this upstart place on the, in San Francisco that really the academics had never heard of. I'd never really heard of it. And, and it turned out there was a wonderful pediatric surgeon there named Alfred DeLarmer. <clears throat> and he was looking for a partner. So when I talked to him, and, and suggested this thing that I wanted to pursue. He didn't, he was one of the few people who said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and it's, uh, and he said, now here are the people, if you came here, here are the people you should talk to. And they weren't surgeons. They were cardiologists, obstetricians, these, they have some really wonderful scientists. And he said the reason you should talk to them is they have developed a way to work on fetal lambs. So they had developed the fetal lamb model, mostly to study cardiac physiology and some other things. But not they had, no one even dared to think about fetal intervention. It just wasn't on anybody's map. So I went there like a <laughs> naive person. I said, hey, can I use your model? And we'll start figuring out what can be done in fetuses. And it turns out the fetal lamb model was a wonderful model. So that's how it all started. So that old problem, the first thing we did was diaphragmatic hernia. I said, oh, well, I wonder how we'd study that. Okay, well, let's do fetal surgery, make a diaphragmatic hernia, close up, come back, you know, X weeks later, and fix it. And then see what happened to the lung, of course. That's the first thing showed that, that making a diaphragmatic hernia gave you small lungs. That was true. Then we uh, said, oh, well, what if you fix it? Would the lung grow? And we did that, and it, and it worked. So that was the very first sort of example of taking a clinical problem, make, mimicking it in a, a model, a la an animal model, and then fixing it and seeing what the results were. So then at, at this stage, though, you've now been at the bedside, you've taken a clinical problem that really intrigues you, you bring it to the bench or to this laboratory, you create a model that mimics this clinical scenario, you work on it, and then what additional steps did it take to now bring this back to the bedside? Okay, that's ready. So uh, you can imagine that since no one had even considered this, and that it had to be multidisciplinary, unlike anything that we surgeons had ever done before. It had to be OB, neonatology, some kinds of science. It really had to be multidisciplinary. And they weren't our patients. It's one thing to start with your patients and start figuring out answers. It's another thing to say, well, we've never seen these patients in our lives. They're still pregnant. <laughs> so we had to work with the with the obstetricians and perinatologists. So the way it happened in our place was it was pretty fun. <clears throat> I'm a big believer in um, regular meetings in which you don't have to schedule anything. So they had a meeting, a sort of low-level meeting in OB 
and, and uh, neonatology, in which they met to basically, so the OB guys could say to the neonatologist, hey, we have a baby being born next week, and, and uh, you know, he's going to be born prematurely, and so it was just a way to communicate. So I started going to those meetings every week, every Tuesday, one o'clock. And, and, uh, and then I started saying, oh, and, and about the same time, by coincidence, the, 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 uh, sonogram people were coming along with their beautiful sonograms. And so what had never been seen before was now being seen regularly. And so the sonogram people would come to the, uh, to the meeting and we had some wonderful people on that and say, Hey, we saw this fetus, you know, for just, and we noticed something wrong, <laughs> you know, like there's something wrong with his chest or his heart or something. So they began to make fetal diagnoses. And then, we're, since we're all in the same room every week, same time, it was all clinical. It wasn't somebody giving a talk about, oh, we should fix diaphragmatic hernia. We never did that. But when it came along and, and Roy Philly would say, hey, I saw a fetus last week who looks like he has a diaphragmatic hernia. Then I could chip in and say, hey, you know, we've been studying this in, in uh, animal models, and we think that there's the, the way to save the severe ones is to fix it before birth. And then the obstetrician would say, wait a minute, you can't do that. And then the neonatologist would say, well, you should try because when we get them, they're, you know, they're going to die. So it, it was all those people together meeting every week about clinical problems, not academics, that really pushed it through. And we've done that ever since, and we do it today. So I think that's a fascinating point about cultivating this environment where you can have natural conversations that come up regarding these clinical scenarios. And I'd like to visit that subject a little more later. But sure. to go back to that that clinical scenario with the patient that showed up in that context with the diaphragmatic hernia, you're in that room with the obstetricians, with the perinatologists, the sonographers. Um, how did you collectively decide, yes, this is the correct first patient? Yes, and that actually came obviously quite a bit later because it took a couple of years of, of conditioning. <laughs> that means, oh, hey, you see a kid with, uh, you know, a urinary tract obstruction. Hey, we should think about relieving the obstruction. And, and everybody said, oh, man, that's stupid. And then the next time it would come up, which would be three weeks later, they'd say, oh, I remember you talking about that. And then in the next week, time it would come up, we'd say, oh, well, we, we've, we've been studying that. And it turns out if you do this and that, you get certain results. So they eventually came on board with our ongoing studies. We provided the, the physiology. They provide, the, the sonographers provided the, the diagnosis. The OB guys provided their expertise. And that's how it moved forward. <clears throat> From there, when did you uh, first attempt an actual in utero operation? And how did that go? So I went there in 78, and the first operation was in, I think, 81. So it's three full years. And really, it was just, you know, that was just opening the door. And, of course, the first things we did were easy. We would never have taken on, for instance, a diaphragmatic hernia. It's too hard. And, and we still had lots of work to do about the techniques and all that stuff. So, but the, so some easy ones we could take on were um, a urinary tract obstruction, for instance, because they're fairly easy to find. 
the severe ones are pretty obvious, blown out kidneys and all that stuff. And the natural history was being defined by uh, the obstetricians and and uh, and X-ray and the sonographers. Uh, so we could get fairly far down the road, and when we and then we started doing the diagnostic part of it. For instance, we started tapping the obstructed bladder and seeing if there was something in there that would tell us which ones were severe, because in all interventions, but mostly and particularly fetal, that all of our problems um, exist on a spectrum, and on the good end of the spectrum, they don't need it. So you need to figure out how not to operate on those. And on the bad end of the spectrum, they really need it. But if they're on the very bad end of the spectrum, they won't respond anyway. <laughs> so our first cases illustrated that. So we sort of said, okay, well, urinary tract stuff is as simple as we can get surgically. Let's do that. So we had a, a, a case of very severe urinary tract obstruction. And we said, okay, we'll do it. And we did actually open, because we developed those techniques, um, ureterostomies. Uh, and it, and the surgery went perfectly, and the follow-up was perfect, and then my kid stayed in, but it, he never responded. Naturally, he was on the way bad end of the spectrum, because we, that's how you have to start. So his kidneys were already gone, and, and that was evidenced by, we didn't know this at the time, but he had that oligohydramnios for you know, a month or something. So he was, now we would never do that because he was cooked. Um, but we did it and it was, and then shortly after that, in a very short time, another case came along that was not nearly as severe. And we said, oh, well, you know, instead of operating on this, we should figure out a way to uh, relieve the obstruction minimally invasively. That's what you guys all want to do now. So we developed this little double pigtail catheter um, that could be put in under sonographic guidance without surgery. Um, and we did that case, and, and it worked. And, the, and it decompressed it. <laughs> and the kid is, uh, he must be in his 30s now. Uh, and, he's, and we still see him, Michael Skinner. He even came to a couple of our meetings just to show off. Um, but, but there's a sidelight to this story <laughs> that, we did, that has to do with ethics. It turned out that first kid we saw and did and fixed was a twin. <laughs> and at the time we said, oh, so is a twin. And so we did it. Well, in, in asking our ethicists and thinking about it since then and talking, you know, it, it's really not appropriate to do a twin because you risk the life of a perfectly good person to save the life of a person who may or may not make it. It turns out his twin uh, was uh, a girl, and she did fine, and they're and they're both great. But we, I don't think we've done twins since. It's just a sort of ethical problem, and there were many, many ethical problems that we came across, and that's the other um, specialty that we got involved very early and would invite to those meetings uh, was a uh, an ethicist, a really good. A guy named Al Johnson, who would come to the meetings. He was an outsider. He was uh, not a doctor, not a you know nothing, and he would give us his opinion. That's where we learned about the problem with twins. <laughs> After we did it, he said, "Al," <laughs> and he said, "No, you should not have done that." And he prevented us from doing many things that were not right. So it seems like the birthplace was in obstructive uropathy. Yep. You're first trying. Uh, urostomies, that fails. 
Um, you guys persist, do a more minimally invasive procedure in a less severe case. Between obstructive uropathy and congenital diaphragmatic hernia, what other pathologies did you attempt to address? We actually had, uh, uh, we, we write, wrote some articles in which we listed what would be possible, uh, what makes sense physiologically to intervene. And there are a fair number. The ones we explored were urinary tract obstruction, diaphragmatic hernia, um, and uh, early on we explored hydrocephalus. So you could say, oh, this problem is just like urinary tract obstruction. It's just a blockage. You decompress the system, the brain develops, and they're not, you know, fixes them. Fortunately, it was another one of the things. In all the cases, we took the problem to the animal lab first um, and demonstrated if you made the problem, you know, you get the result, and if you fix the problem, you'd get the result you wanted. And that was true for diaphragmatic hernia and urinary tract obstruction, but it was not true for hydrocephalus. So we had to create a, a model of fetal hydrocephalus, and we didn't know how to do it. And of course, we got our neurosurgeons involved, and, and eventually we did. We made a good model of hydrocephalus, and then we went to fix it, and it didn't work. I mean, we didn't get the correction. And so we never ever did a case of fetal hydrocephalus. So we were completely turned off by our own research. But in the meantime, <clears throat> it was such an obvious target that other people had taken it on and were starting to do it around the world with uh, uh, shunts placed. You know. And it didn't work in them either. <laughs> and, and about you know, a few years later at our meeting, which we actually started our little club of fetal guys, um, we agreed that it shouldn't be done. And, and, and as a group, we called it off, and it's not been done in the last 40 years. So we're pretty proud of things we don't do as well. So one thing that strikes me when you say that is one of the uh, obstacles that you're facing in these fetal interventions is nature and genetics, <laughs> right? That they come with multiple anomalies and they're syndromic. And um, so in what way did you face that? And um, in what ways have you been trying to address that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. So, uh, the, uh, it, so we did the best we could as time goes along which is 20 times better now than it was when we started. So when we started, there was amniocentesis and in the three-day, you know, test. And and as time went along, it got way better. First, there was chorionic venous sampling, and there was fast, you know, genetic analysis. And now it's just, now it's maternal blood. It's just great. But it was always a concern and it was always something that, that we asked somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, how do you know that kid doesn't have, you know, this other problem or a related problem or underlying genetic defect? And uh, at the, as I said, just you did the best you could at the time to not make the mistake of correcting one problem when there are others. The other totally limiting factor for fetal intervention, which is still true today, is preterm labor. That is the killer. Um, and so in those early days, we said, oh, we know that's going to be a huge problem. Um, so we have to prove that we can do this and not, you know, make such premature babies. That it is. And to do that, we said to ourselves, oh, 
Well, we can't use the fetal lamb model anymore because it's too easy. It's too easy. That's the, what makes the fetal lamb model wonderful. They don't go into preterm labor. So he said, we have to do something that's hard and show that we can do it without preterm labor. And, of course, that was the non-human primate, the monkey. So in those early days, we insisted, even before that first case, of doing the same thing in a non-human primate and having the mom do well and having the newborn do well. Um, and that was a fairly high bar, but but we did you know, hundreds of operations in, well, thousands in, in lambs and hundreds in monkeys. And we're still doing them today. We did one last week. <laughs> and that's not a solved problem yet, as you probably know. So where do we stand today? As far as I know, the most common procedure is the myelomeningocele repair. What else are operations, is CDH getting addressed in utero or what else is going on? In yeah, it's a one, they're all great stories. So uh, the, the myelomeningocele is a late story, a wonderful story, but a late story. So the early one was um, urinary tract obstruction, fairly simple, and the and it's still being done, but very selectively because we learned that most of those kids don't need it. They're on the good end of the spectrum, and then, then the ones who are way on the bad end of the spectrum. So it's a very narrow group that need it. But there are better ways to do it. So now we can, uh, instead of sticking a... A shunt in the bladder, you can actually uh, deal with the posterior urethral valves directly by doing fetal cystoscopy, which is really fun. So I think we just put it through the mom's abdominal wall, through the uterine wall. If you can see, you know, maneuver into the valves and take care of them. That, so that's a big advance. But again, it's a very small number of folks. The one that's really the, the most... Uh, a useful thing and the most commonly done is not for is for twin twin transfusion. So that came along fairly early too, um, but it's only been perfected. You know when we had good lasers and very small scopes and you could do it percutaneously. Originally we actually did it open, but the general idea was one twin's killing the other by virtue of transfusion. If you could just separate the two, uh, their placental blood supply, you'd you'd save both of them. And, and that works, and it is fairly common. We do, I mean, I bet we do one every week or one every couple of weeks. And around the world, they're just done tons. The obstetricians mostly do those now because they, the techniques are amenable to that. Uh, what else? Um, there are a bunch of things, uh, but uh, let's go to myelomingus hill. So that was uh, a little bit late on the scene, and the reason is it was the first thing that we tackled that wasn't fatal. So one of the criteria we set out initially, and we set out a bunch of criteria for the problems, was that it had to have the potential that the kid would die unless you did something. And that justified this risky intervention. Well, in this case, the kid wouldn't die. But he had, but it was a terrible disease. So I, I said, well, it's not life-threatening, but it's sort of a life-wrecking. Um, and then we had a lot of meetings with those societies and and eventually came around to uh, doing it. We were not, we in our little place, we're not terribly enthusiastic, although we had done the original animal work, again in fetal lambs, and that was Martin Muley coming over from Switzerland 
with his wife and doing those studies in our lab. And, and they were very encouraging. And that laid the groundwork for doing it. But the clinical application was done uh, first by other folks, the guy in Vanderbilt and, and then the CHOP, our, our friends in CHOP. So uh, we were sort of late to that. Um, but, uh, but it turned out to be a good exercise. And then we helped to organize that big study um, uh, that was the definitive study in and now it's now I'm I'm just amazed every everybody I see who I didn't even know or interested in fetal stuff I say hey I, I'm doing island seal next week so a lot of folks are doing it and that's great. How much of a role do you think um, you played into the further innovation that has come out of what you started? So now we're seeing crazier things like the exit procedure, or even today we have uh, topics about the injection of nanoparticles or uh, uh, partnerships with bioengineering to try to uh, reorient how the fetus develops with minimally invasive procedures. Um, What are your thoughts on these sorts of newer innovations? It's fabulous, but we'll back up and do. So because we didn't finish doing all the things that, that that we developed. So some of them fit into that category. Uh, which so um, cystic lung disease, so CCAMs, or uh, we did we did those very early on, and again we could make models of it and and prove it, and then we did the first cases of open resection, and and then it evolved to other things. Um, what else? Another one fits into the category you just asked about. We 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 invented exit, and I named it. One of the, the thing I'm really proud of is that we've named almost everything. And I spend a lot of time just sitting down writing letters and figuring out names for things. So exit. Anyway, that and that's that is that's great. I mean it works and it's saved a bunch of people and yeah. It's, what else? Um okay, uh, then the the injection kind of procedures. So uh, we, uh, my colleague at, uh, at our place just did the first in utero stem cell for thalassemia, but the bad one, the, yeah, major, yeah, alpha thal. And it appears to work. And that is a wonderful field. As you know, Alan Flake and a lot of people have been thinking about this for a long time. So stem cell transplantation, either for, to correct the disease with the stem cells or to set them up for transplantation after birth, are, those are all wonderful. And, and I think you're going to, man, that, I mean, those are a lot of big diseases. So they're going after the storage diseases now, probably cystic fibrosis. I mean, they're going to go after a lot of stuff. And now that you get gene editing, you can do even more. It's going to be fabulous. That's it. That's the field I'd go into (laughs) starting over. So your device consortium is also developing actual technologies like uh, using magnets and um, other things like that. So can you talk a little yeah. bit about these new innovations? Yes. It's not, it, there's, there's not a direct line from fetal stuff uh, to the, uh, the device innovation. Although how I got interested in it was we had to make up so many things for fetal surgery that were just things retractors, ways to open and close the uterus. Just We had to make all those things up. And in the course of that, we had to make up devices and go down and work with guys. 
And so when so then I just kept doing that. I I really like that part of it, and it, it allows you to work with people uh, not like us. They're they're engineers and chemical engineers and electrical engineers and and different kinds of scientists and just a bunch of wacko people. So uh, to cut to the chase on that, we we started doing it. We kept doing it, and eventually, it evolved much like fetal surgery. Much like fetal surgery, we have a weekly meeting every Tuesday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, entirely devoted to uh, device innovation, mostly pediatric device innovation. And it's the same thing. People come and they, you know, present some crazy idea and everybody jumps on it and helps out. And and it's, it's really fun. And it's been extremely productive because... The most productive things you'll ever do in your life are at the interface of some other discipline, whether it's you guys working with, you know, urologists or other kinds of scientists. But it's usually an interface. It's usually not within your own world. And so that, so the Pediatric Device Consortium uh, was born out of that uh, that work and was uh, and is now supported by the FDA. It's been supported by the FDA for ten years. And we recently just got a big five-year grant from them, so that that's going strong. The only residual part of it for fetal, no, actually there are several parts, because you asked about diaphragmatic hernia, whether we're still doing is let's start with diaphragmatic hernia. So the, the diaphragmatic hernia, the treatment in utero has evolved just the way it should. The only way we knew how to fix it initially was open surgery, and it was big complicated surgery but we worked out all the techniques and we made it work and the kids would survive but in the course of doing that we defined the natural history such that we learned who not to operate on which is at least half the kids and and then who you know we we got down the natural history part then we said oh and then and then we did a proper trial of in utero open intervention versus uh, uh, not and it turned out that the kids who really needed it, the severe end of the spectrum, we couldn't help. We didn't know that at the time. The kids who didn't need it, of course, didn't need it. So, and the reason they, the one, the severe ones, um, we couldn't help is something we hadn't anticipated. The problem was anatomic. It was that their liver was herniated into their chest. And then when we went to fix it and push the liver down, it kinked the vena cava because it was used to being and and the kids would die. It was the most discouraging experience. So all of a sudden, there are a whole bunch of kids who don't need us, and then the severe ones we can't fix. So we said, we're done. And we sort of let the world know that we're not going to do diaphragmatic hernias anymore, and everybody in the world stopped because the other people were starting. And then uh, sort of in this time, uh, we had an experiment of nature um, in which we'd see a few rarely, uh, you know, kids who had naturally occurring uh, tracheal obstruction. And, and we actually named it chaos, congenital high airway obstruction syndrome. And we noticed that, that when you autopsied these kids after birth, they had super lungs. They had super lungs. So then we started to study, oh, you mean if you strangle a kid in utero that his lungs will grow? And, and it turns out, yes. 
And the reason is that the, the fetal lung is exporting fluid all the time. That's why there's surfactant in the amniotic fluid. And that, it, and that the fetus, for the lung to develop, you need a little back pressure, usually provided by your vocal cords. So they close once in a while and you, you know, so you need that. And if you take that away, you get hypoplastic lungs. And if you have too much of it, you get hyperplastic lungs. So we said, oh, <laughs> I wonder if you could fix diaphragmatic hernia by strangling the kid. And it turns out it looks like it's the case. So we started doing um, tracheal obstruction in kids with, diaph- with severe diaphragmatic hernia. And initially we had to do it open. It was the only way we knew how. We'd actually operate on the kid's neck and put clips on and stuff. And then we learned how to do it uh, fetoscopically. That was the the world's hardest operation, so not good. Uh, And then eventually we learned how to do it, and many other people contributed to this, to do it endoscopically with fetal bronchoscopy. Um, And uh, if you could leave behind an obstruction. And it turned out uh, we went down to our friends in interventional radiology, which my daughter is going into now, um, and... Uh, learned that they were doing um, uh, balloon occlusion of blood vessels in the brain um, using a detachable balloon. So they had the technology where you could blow up a balloon and detach it. He said, hey, can we use that? <laughs> and they came up and helped us do the first kits. That enterprise has, is, uh, is full-blown now. So, and it's not by us. It's mostly by the Europeans. Because uh, they got very good at it, and they're very, and they have smaller and smaller scopes, and they're very good at uh, the bronchoscopy part, leaving behind. So, uh, we just finished in the last few weeks a uh, randomized control trial of fetoscopic balloon occlusion, what they call feto versus not, you know, randomized. Uh, and we're. Anyway, it's the, the randomization part is done, 200 or 198 patients. Uh, and now we're just analyzing the results. And my guess is it'll be good. So it's, that's a pretty cool story, from open to minimally invasive. That's absolutely amazing. It's really spectacular. <laughs> Turning from positive to negative, you talked about the naysayers early on. There's still naysayers out there. Um, when I was expressing an interest in fetal surgery back in medical school not that long ago, I was told fetal surgery is already a dying field. Um, and now, not to get political, but there's a lot of partisan disagreement about you know when is the fetus viable and things like that. So where does fetal surgery stand today? And um, talking about the ethics and talking about what is its role in this environment right now where, you know, we are debating yeah. when is a fetal heartbeat or when is a fetus viable. Yeah, that's it. And the whole thing's amazing. But I'll just tell you the history just from our point of view. So when we started, we said, oh, man, we're going to have all kinds of ethical problems and all kinds of, you know, right to life and all that stuff. And where, how can we protect this very fragile enterprise? At the time, it was very fragile. I, it, I disagree. It's not fragile now. It's a totally, it's there. But what the, what your friends were saying is fetal surgery is dying, and that's absolutely true for open fetal surgery because it's being replaced by better things. It's just, it, you know, it's fetoscopy. It's all these other things. So, of course, it's going to die. It should die. Um, but the enterprise is just thriving. I mean, it's just thriving. 
Um, so let's see, we started down the ethics pathway. So um, we didn't know how to deal with this, except we would write about it and and make rules for ourselves and for other people. And um, the the upshot was uh, that we try we we said to ourselves we better not get involved in the national debate. If we do on either side, we're going to be killed, right? Because the other side will kill you. So so we never took a stand on the business of the uh, of abortion or any of that stuff. We just said when we see these kids, they have a problem and we want to fix it. We're just doctors. That's it. Um. So, so I don't think fetal surgery in general has ever come down on in in that big debate, and I'm glad we had didn't. I think it would we wouldn't have survived. So, one more question for you: the next generation, how do we train them in these procedures that are seemingly high risk because you're dealing with two patients, you're dealing with an unborn life? Um, how do we go about training the next generation of innovators, of fetal surgeons, and fetal interventionists? Well, I th- aren't you guys doing pretty well right now? I mean, there are a bunch of programs now. Remember, initially it was just us, and then a few other people, and the people we trained went out and went to Philadelphia and went to all kinds of other places, set up great programs, and started uh, doing it right and and I think they all have there's a lot of training available now, but it's like every rare procedure, like cardiac surgery initially. I mean, you know, you do get trained, but you have to stand in line and do a lot of other things first. And maybe there's not as much opportunity to do the stuff in which you learn the technical aspects, like fetal uh, animal surgery, you know, fetal lambs or monkeys or something, where. Our guys do it. I mean, they, they do it right now, our surgical research fellows. They, and because you can do that in that circumstance, they can't. It's harder and harder. You are right. It's harder and harder to, to have younger folks take over full responsibility for an operation. I guess that must be in a dilemma for, for all the surgery. Yeah, everything. And, I, and there's no special solution in fetal stuff. One of the dilemmas that you don't have that uh, that fetal surgery will always have is the dilemma of specialties because the OB guys can do more and more of this stuff. And as we develop the techniques, they can just do the twin-twin transfusion and all that stuff, and it's perfectly appropriate. But, you know, it, pediatric surgeons won't be doing – we won't be doing the uh, the stem cell injections or, you know, all those things that – no. So this has been awesome. Um, in all of our segments, we like to close with a final set of five questions to <laughs> kind of get to know you a little bit more personally. Um, so just to start, uh, is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career? She's sitting right next to me. <laughs> yeah, my wife has been there all along. Our next question is, do you have a favorite movie that comes off the top of your head. I have a lot of favorite movies, but I'm... T- oh, my. <laughs> well, we like musicals, so My Fair Lady. <laughs> That's pretty corny. Do you have a favorite book that you would recommend that all our listen- listeners uh, read? Oh, I have lots of favorite books. Uh, and I can't tell you the one I'm reading now because it's just a... <laughs> 
spy thriller. Um, but I'm read on the on the plane on the way out. Something that really is useful for everybody is is the guy who wrote. I, I wrote. I uh, read his recent thing, Twenty One Lessons for the Twenty First Century. This is the first one, which is yeah, Homo sapiens. So the name of the book is Sapiens, but it's from Homo sapiens. Yeah, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. He is really a good writer, and he is a big thinker. So, yeah, those are, I'd recommend those to anybody. So you said that you rode back in college, um, or you were on crew. I guess that's the proper term. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you were to compete in the Olympics, summer or winter, doesn't have to be rowing, doesn't have to be an event that you've actually competed in before, what's something that draws you? Well, Gretchen was a was a, a ski racer for to, through college, and so I wasn't. I was not very good, <laughs> but I, I would still. I love crew. I mean, I don't do any of it, and I couldn't. But uh, it was a really fun thing to do. And at the time, everybody who was in a sport was wanted to go to the Olympics, and that's particularly true of crew people because there's not other. You know, there's no World Series. There's no. <laughs> It was basically the Olympics. We never got there. But. And to close things out, finally, right now, uh, if we were to look in your closet, what would we find in or on your white coat? I don't have a white coat anymore because I just work with our innovators. But what would we – oh, Gretsch brought our little – so I have a pin from being a president of APSA. It's a very cute pin. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. This was absolutely fantastic. And actually, so we do have um, your wife sitting here with us. And just as we're closing out, love to hear from you. You know, we're talking about the fetal of or the father of fetal surgery, and um, he's a very prominent member of pediatric surgery. And so um, that must have uh, at times been tough. Um, as he was working very hard and, um, but you also at the same time must be very, very proud. And, um, so I'm just curious to hear from you, your thoughts on, um, Dr. Harrison's career and kind of, um, you know, how was, how has life been for you, um, being married to such a person? I'll make this brief. We met when we were juniors in high school and, um, I am very proud of him. He has worked really hard. I wanted, when I was sitting there, I was thinking, he's he's very curious, he's very smart, and he's not afraid to try something new. And he's very good at blocking out everything around him. All the, er- all the arrows that come in. <laughs> he thinks about them. And then, so I am very proud of him, and I'm very proud of our four children. We have the five of us, me and my children, have made it through, um, yes, all his many hours of hard work. And for I would say for about 20 years, it was really hard going through the fetal surgery process. He was dedicated and kept going. That's great. And it's great to see you guys here and being so supportive of each other. And it's fantastic. Thank you. It was wonderful. Until next time, dominate the day.